Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Dr. Eben Alexander. You are most welcome, sir. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for having me on. It's a joy to be with you today. Thank you. Now, Eben, if you didn't know, is, uh, was an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years, including 15 years at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, the Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. He experienced a transcendental near-death experience, or NDE as it's often known, during a week-long coma from an inexplicable brain infection that completely transformed his worldview. A pioneering scientist and modern thought leader in the emerging science that acknowledges the primacy of consciousness in the universe. Very interesting. He is the author of uh, the New York Times number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven and The Map of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe. So would you like to introduce us to the science of consciousness and how science and spirituality are closely related, especially in the context of near-death experiences? All right. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, uh, question. And, and certainly my, my life, uh, including my near-death experience almost 14 years ago now, um, and my collaboration with scientists around the world in, in trying to more deeply understand consciousness is a result of every bit of that. And that's what I'd like to share with the audience. Mm. Um, so it turns out who I was before, uh, you know, I'd uh, grown up in a very scientific family. Uh, my father was a globally renowned neurosurgeon. He headed a neurosurgical training program. Um, and... Uh, Turns out, though, that he was also quite spiritual, uh, religious. Uh, power of prayer was important to him. His belief in a loving personal God uh, was part of his healing as a surgeon. But for me, like many who grew up in the 60s and 70s, I knew science was a pathway to truth. And uh, that's what I followed those first 54 years of my life before my coma in 2008. Um, and I had wanted to believe much of what I'd heard growing up in a Methodist church in North Carolina and then as an adult in an Episcopal church in Massachusetts uh, and then Virginia. But, uh, you know, I had great trouble understanding how conscious awareness could survive the death of the brain and body. That to me was a real challenge. And that's why I think I was gifted with this extraordinary uh, experience back in 2008. One important thing to point out is an atypical feature of my near-death experience, or NDE, uh, was that I was amnesic. I had no memory whatsoever of Eben Alexander's life, no knowledge of humans, this universe, uh, Earth. Uh, any, every bit of that was deleted, uh, an empty slate, uh, what I call a tabula rasa. Mm -hmm. And although that's a bit atypical for NDEs, my NDEs had so many features that it scores very high on Bruce Grayson's NDE scale, uh, which has a maximum score of 32. Anything above seven is considered a, a, a near-death experience. And I scored a 28 or 29. So I was clearly well into the realm of near-death experiences. Uh, but this uh, amnesia was something that I think was important for some of the deeper lessons I was to learn. Uh, and that only became apparent to me in the months and years after the coma. Now, what I remember from the experience and, and the memories of the experience itself are as vivid today as if the whole thing happened yesterday. Really? I mean, that's one amazing wow. thing about NDE memories as have been scientifically studied uh, uh, 
and revealed to be uh, some of the most extraordinary, stable, and resilient memories we can have of anything. They just rival. Just to interrupt, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to clarify. So it's not like you had a dream and a dream state, and it kind of fades with time. For you, the right. concreteness, the vividness is still with you. I just find that amazing. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted just to. Just to right. stress that um, aspect of your experience, I think it's remarkable. Well, it's it's true of 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 most NDEs. I mean, that's my point. Is there scientific papers out of Italy, scientific papers out of University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies here in the U.S. that show the resilience of these NDE memories rivals pretty much any other kind of memories we can have. They are not dreams or hallucinations or kind of vague uh, uh, recollections. They're extraordinary, uh, crisp, sharp, uh, meaningful, powerful, uh, and they change people's lives. I mean, that's what's so astonishing about these is they have a very positive effect on changing people's lives. Totally different, for example, from psychosis. Um, But anyway, getting back back into my journey. uh, So it started Uh, And again, in this totally amnesic state where I had no words or language or knowledge of earth or of memories of my life, uh, it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive, coarse, uh, unresponsive realm. Uh, And I had no body awareness during any part of my NDE, uh, but I was aware. I was kind of recording this stream of experience uh, as it went along. And... um, it started in that earthworm's eye view. It was like being in dirty jello, kind of a subterranean environment. Uh, and I, I had tactile sensation. I, I remember feeling like roots or blood vessels all around me. Uh, and I had no memories of anything else. So as, as foreboding as this environment might sound to people, to me, it was just the way existence is. I simply accepted it. This is it. Uh, and didn't have any complaints or any kind of fear or foreboding about it all. Uh, and it turns out there then came this slowly spinning white light that came packaged with a perfect musical melody. Uh, And the music is important because uh, sound, vibration, frequency, things we would experience in these spiritual realms, we're not hearing with the ears. We're not seeing with the eyes. It's more knowledge through identification where we become huge swathes of the scene. That's why uh, these are often described as ineffable, as indescribable. Uh, And from this gateway, I mean, from this uh, earthworm eye view, this uh, slowly spinning white light became a portal. Uh, it was like a wormhole up into this rich, ultra-real gateway valley. And that's the part that uh, requires tremendous explanation because people tend to assume <clears throat> that a near-death experience is kind of vague and murky and dreamlike. Mm. In fact, what a near-death experience shows us is this world in these bodies, that's vague, murky, dreamlike right. uh, compared compared to the reality of these experiences. And uh, uh, it's really kind of extraordinary to go through it. And yet there are millions of people who have had uh, NDEs and they all have tremendous similarities in their kind of content and qualities and themes uh, that's very important to elucidate. Mm-hmm. Now, in this uh, gateway valley, as I called it, uh, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing. And, and I was there among millions of other butterflies and they were looping and spiraling these vast formations, a river of just color and, and frequency. And color is beyond the rainbow, just this extraordinarily rich <clears throat> environment. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. 
Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. And all below was this beautiful meadow surrounded by a forest. And the meadow and forest were lush with life. There was no sign of any death or decay. In fact, I often like to uh, point out to people that this world I'm describing now, this uh, gateway valley, is very much like Plato's world of ideals. It's kind of a world of ideals for the individual soul. It's where we reunite with our higher soul, reunite with the souls of departed loved ones who've already left the physical plane. It's where we go through life reviews. So the life review is uh, reported in somewhere between 25 and 50 percent of NDE experiences, depending on the on the series. Uh, but the life review is especially noteworthy um, for two reasons. One is it's a reliving of events with adjustments, with uh, uh, kind of a course correction. It's not just a vague sepia-tinted remembering of events of our life, but a real active uh, kind of reliving. And the other thing that's fascinating about it is when you talk to more and more people who've had these kind of experiences, you get the flavor that you experience it not from your own perspective, but the emotional perspective of those around you. Wow. So these life events that that involve your life are reviewed, but in such a fashion that you get to feel the kind of emotional power of others who were affected by your actions and even your thoughts. And in many ways, Karen and I, my uh, uh, life partner and co-author of the third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, often say it's like the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated is written into the very fabric of the universe. Wow. And given that that golden rule is so important for all religious and moral systems, even non-religious ones, uh, moral and ethical systems, you know, the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. It seems so simple and basic, and yet it's uh, uh, right there at the heart, and it's a lesson that apparently has not been very easy uh, to teach to this world. No. Anyway, so... That gateway valley is that kind of uh, uh, ultra real realm of the spiritual where we uh, have these kind of encounters, go through uh, plans for next incarnations, all that kind of thing. It's a much uh, bigger territory than I might have ever imagined. And as I said, uh, we become huge swathes of the reality. That's how life reviews can happen, that we can become you know, other beings, other minds experiencing these events of our life in real time as part of a course correction, as part of learning and teaching uh, any residual lessons from life. So in this Gateway Valley, uh, I was not alone. Uh, I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing, but beside me on the butterfly wing was a beautiful young woman. And those who read the book Proof of Heaven will realize how crucial she was in the journey because it was really my discovering of her identity four months after I awakened from coma that proved to me the deep and profound reality of the experience itself. And I'd been wrestling with it for a while after awakening from coma. But continuing on with the story in this beautiful Gateway Valley, uh, th this woman, her message to me was uh, very profound, refreshing, uh, absolutely rejuvenating uh, to my soul in that moment. Her message, as I wrote in words, 
uh, weeks later. Now, it wasn't delivered in words. It was pure emotional conceptual flow, telepathically delivered. She never had to say a word. Her emotional reality came directly into my awareness. You are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are deeply cared for. And uh, in proof of heaven, I reported the third major element was she said, you can do no wrong. And I wish I had explained that a lot more fully in the book, because some people misinterpret that. Uh, and they don't get that at that point in the journey, I was already witnessing the incredible love and beauty and wholeness of that God force and realizing that we have free will. We are gifted with free will, as opposed to what materialist science that I worshipped before my coma dictated that there is no free will. It's all just chemical reactions, electron fluxes in the substance of the brain. So there could never be any such free will. Well, my journey showed me clearly that free will was at the very heart of this unfolding uh, set of lessons. <clears throat> and so it turns out uh, that what I was learning was we have the choice uh, to uh, hew close to that uh, love, kindness, compassion, forgiveness uh, towards becoming the ideal soul that we came here to be, or we have a choice to do otherwise. And that's where our life review, especially occurring in this realm of pure light and love, any of the falling away that we may have done in our life, if we're handing out pain or suffering to others, showing greed or selfishness, egotistical uh, mindsets, all those things look especially bad in this uh, beautiful setting of the life review, where really the ambience is one of uh, universal good and the highest and best good for all involved. The real deep principles uh, that these kind of journeys teach us about how we should live our lives. Now, uh, from that point, I remember uh, on this butterfly wing, uh, witnessing the soft summer breeze that blew through. And to me, that breeze, as I called it in my early writings weeks later, it was the breath of God or divine wind. And that was my first awareness in this amnesic state for the power, majesty, and personal love of that uh, profound God source at the core of the universe. Uh, and coming to realize that our conscious awareness is actually just an extension of that God source and never separate from it. Um, and so in witnessing all the events in this valley, there were thousands of beings down dancing, lots of joy and merriment. I remember children playing, dogs jumping, incredible festivities. And it was all being fueled because up above were these swooping orbs of angelic choirs that were emanating chants, anthems, hymns that would just thunder through my awareness, this incredible power and majesty, but also in a setting of being a spiritual home. I cannot tell you how comforting this experience was and how it was like, ah, oh, yes, back home where I belong. And that's the sense you get out of so many NDEs. And it's the reason people should realize when you study the NDE literature, there is nothing to fear about death. The materialist falsely believes that your consciousness dribbles down to nothing as your brain and body die. But the exact opposite is the case, because modern science of consciousness, as we can get into in, in uh, further discussion, is all about this oneness of mind and a primordial consciousness that we all share and that the brain is serving as a filter, a reducing valve that allows primordial consciousness in, but only in this little trickle. And, and the uh, kind of fictional nature of that trickle is revealed when we leave the physical brain and body at the time of death. That's what NDEs and that's what, say, hospice experience, which describes the very same things as NDEs.
Mm-hmm. about encountering souls of departed loved ones, coming into lessons of love, making amends in one's life. That's all right there in the hospice literature alongside the NDE literature. So these arguments about, well, an NDE didn't die, so we can't say anything about uh, what that tells us about what happens when we die. That's false because it aligns perfectly with the hospice literature on what happens as people are approaching death. Uh, and it, uh, this uh, kind of matching up with NDEs is why the science of consciousness now is taking NDEs much more seriously. Now, it turns out, back to my story, that Gateway Valley was not my endpoint. Uh, I remember at this point uh, witnessing all of four-dimensional space-time and the lowest material realms collapsing down. And then all of that uh, rich layer of spiritual reality in the Gateway Valley um, collapsing down. But the point of, uh, to be made here is that there's a very different ordering of time that I call deep time in the spiritual realm that allows for things like uh, reliving of uh, life review events in such a fashion that they, they kind of sum and contribute to the growth of the soul. In other words, these are very alive life reviews, uh, again, uh, allowing us to learn and teach from the events and from the perspective of many others, because it's like we're sharing the dream of the one mind that's all revealed in that life review. Now, what then happened to me, though, was those angelic choirs provided a portal to a higher level. So as I'm witnessing that four-dimensional space-time collapsing down, that different ordering of time called deep time also collapsing down. Um, and uh, with it, all of that spiritual realm of the Gateway Valley uh, and I sent it through another light portal that was uh, basically of, of music. It was of the music of those angelic choirs, providing higher and higher access to that sanctum sanctorum of the divine, to the core realm. The core was infinite inky blackness, but filled to overflowing with a divine healing and wholesome love of that God source uh, right at the core of our very conscious awareness. And witnessing that oneness with the divine is something that completely violated everything I'd ever been taught in my conventional uh, Methodist and Episcopal teaching. And that oneness with God was one of the most remarkable features. Now, don't think for one second that this is Evan Alexander's ego mind believing that it's one with this God force. This is far more profound than that. And it's something I believe we can all cultivate through meditation, centering prayer, different modes of going within. But in that core realm, uh, all, all the paradoxes, all the dualities, you know, good, bad, uh, uh, male, female, dark, light, et cetera, every bit of that is resolved into oneness in that core realm and that oneness with the divine. And I remember sensing that there was a brilliant orb of light that was there to serve as a translator. Uh, basically, uh, on, on first entering that core realm, I wasn't feeling uh, the oneness with the divine. But then as the process proceeded with that brilliant orb of lights uh, and, and also this, in, this entire multiverse that I just witnessed collapsing down as I ascended through these levels, uh, was there as a teaching tool, and I would become swathes of that as part of the demonstration of these bigger, deeper principles. And that included visions of, of, of life reviews, because I didn't have an Eben Alexander life review because of my amnesia, but I had these profound visions of life reviews and of uh, planning next incarnations, of reincarnation, which is a giant part of this. You cannot deny 
the importance and the science of consciousness that the reincarnation literature brings to the fore. And for those who want to learn more about that, because I was completely unaware of the scientific data supporting reincarnation before my coma, but my coma showed me so clearly that reincarnation was absolutely real that I had to dive in deeply and realize you didn't have to go far to find a lot of scientific evidence for reincarnation. One of the best resources is uvadops.org. That's University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies.org. And you'll find there more than 2,500 cases a past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation studied over the last six decades, first by Dr. Ian Stevenson, now by Dr. Jim Tucker. But that whole reincarnation literature, which also involves 1,700 solved cases, that is cases where with doing heavy, diligent research, the researchers were able to uncover the person who had lived before that is described by the child. And remember, these cases go back to the 1960s. So long before the internet uh, availed people of ways to, uh, you know, kind of get that kind of information. But even the modern cases are very young children. They're carefully vetted to, uh, to eliminate a fraud and you know, people kind of fooling themselves and making things up when they're not true. Um, but that reincarnation literature is absolutely fascinating. But in the core realm, I was witnessing every bit of that. Now, in this journey, I would tumble back down to that earthworm I view. And it was by remembering the musical notes, the melody, that I could conjure up that light portal that took me back into the Gateway Valley, always reassured by that beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing, always witnessing the events of that uh, middle realm of that uh, gateway valley, and then ascending through those angelic choirs to highest levels. Every time I, I entered the core, I was told, you're not here to stay, you'll be going back. I'd even come to believe that going back went, meant going back to the earth where my view, which of course to me was no problem because I'd already learned that by remembering the musical notes of the melody, I could conjure up the portals that enabled me to ascend through these spiritual levels. But they weren't kidding. And there came a time when I could no longer conjure up those portals. Uh, to say I was sad at that moment would be an understatement. But I also realized I could trust in the universe, just as I've been reassured every passage through the uh, Gateway Valley with that beautiful guardian angel, you are deeply loved and cared for. You have nothing to fear. And, and so I knew I could trust. And that trust in the universe is, is something that I think many people can gain from personal experience and from reading into e-accounts, from learning more about this whole uh, literature. Now, it turns out that's when I, I witnessed thousands of beings going off into the distance, into the mists around me, uh, heads bowed, many holding candles, some with hoods, uh, hands up like this. And this murmuring energy coming from them was very surprising to me because with it came this incredible sense of a spiritual home, of being welcomed, of being comforted, of being nurtured and cultivated by this experience. And, and yet, even though it was the same kind of feeling of being in a spiritual home that I'd already witnessed in the Gateway Valley in the core realm, here it was occurring in this lowliest, murkiest realm, uh, akin to the gateway, uh, akin to the earth where my view, and. 
that I call in my writings weeks later, the power of prayer, that I was feeling this beautiful sense of these beings, these spiritual beings, uh, kind of ushering me in a direction uh, and showing me that it was filled with this love and of this kind of higher good and this God force. Uh, and it was then that I saw six faces that would bubble up out of the muck. They'd say a few words, then disappear. I can remember those faces today as if it just happened this morning, just very intense kind of imagery and, and kind of uh, identity with this experience. Uh, and yet I didn't understand the words at the time I saw them. And I didn't know who they were when I saw them. But it was hours later that I came out of this coma and that was day seven of coma. It's important to point out that uh, my doctors uh, had estimated a 10% chance of survival at the beginning of the week. Uh, I spent a week on a ventilator uh, and not showing signs of improvement. So by day seven of coma, they estimated a 2% chance of survival, but no chance of recovery. Because in the medical literature, you just didn't find cases of severe gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis involving all eight lobes of the brain that was then involved with a seven-day coma or longer that was then uh, associated with a full recovery. I mean, that part is truly shocking. And that's what gets the medical and scientific community's attention is that full recovery from such an extreme illness. Um, so it turns out that those six faces were very important. Six faces I saw at the very end because they proved to be what are called veridical time anchors. Uh, they were people who were present in the ICU room the last 24 hours of coma. Of note, I had no memory of family and friends who had been present earlier in the week. And so what this helped to do was to show the vast majority of the coma experience had to happen between days one and four or one in five. And I go through the timing of all that in the book, Proof of Heaven. Um, but that's what the evidence uh, led to. And, um, and it was really the sixth phase that got my attention. Uh, that was of a 10-year-old boy, and uh, that was day seven of coma. My son, Bond, who was 10 years old at the time, uh, they'd protected him from the worst news through the week. But this Sunday morning, he overheard that conversation with the doctors recommending it was time to stop my antibiotics. And that's when he ran down the hallway and opened up my eyelids. Eyes were taped shut. I was still on my ventilator, as I had been for seven days. When I looking over there, when I over there, and uh, neither pupil working, those of you in medicine will realize that's a horrible picture. Uh, and he was pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. As if somehow that would make it so. And uh, I promise you, I did not see him with my eyes. I didn't hear him with my ears. I was far too gone into spiritual realms. But I could sense that pleading. And so this entire journey, I thought this can continue. It can cease. Doesn't matter. I had no sense of responsibility or anything, any relationship with any of souls in any other realms. But now there it was front and center, this pleading with me. I knew I had to come back. And uh, truth be told, that was really the greatest moment of fear and trepidation in the entire experience, because now it all did matter. And yet I didn't understand any of the rules of this. And I somehow had to come back for him. And my will of my spirit was able to bring me back. And it was 
remember that's often a theme in NDEs. People are so uh, kind of entranced with the beauty of the of that realm, uh, they really don't have a big desire to come back to this, and yet uh, they do. They end up choosing to come back out of a sense of responsibility for other souls. And I would say that's exactly what happened to me at the very end there. Now, important to point out, though, that when I did start waking up in the ICU room uh, and fighting that ventilator tube, and they finally pulled it out, and I said, thank you. Uh, my language was just beginning to come back to me, but I still was amnesic. So I didn't recognize loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons. I had no idea who these beings were, although language and my memory of, of my connection to them came back over hours childhood memories over a week or two, all my semantic knowledge of cosmology, physics, neuroscience came back over about two months. And the astonishing thing is we discuss in great detail in our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is the fact that the memories uh, became more complete than they had been before coma. And this was apparent to me because of deep conversations about distant early life events with close family and friends. And those conversations after coma compared to long before coma, I realized that my memories were more complete after the coma. And that's an astonishing thing that we go into, but it's another uh, data point that memories are not stored in the physical brain at all. It's something neurosurgeons have suspected for decades because there's never been a case of long-term memory loss with any neurosurgical resection. Um, but anyway, uh, over two months, I did end up having a, a complete recovery. It's a tremendous blessing to me. And so for the 14 years since then, I've been working with other scientists around the world. For example, GalileoCommission.org, ScienceAndMedical.org, uh, uh, these various scientific networks <clears throat> on the Internet um, that people can access uh, the documentation and kind of manifesto supporting the reality of primordial consciousness, because that's really where all this is going. And as we discussed in Living in a Mindful Universe, the scientific discussion is really about a unification of science and spirituality. And you cannot deny in the modern world the reality of these experiences. As I've said, the scientific groups that study them uh, are coming up with uh, in, you know, some models for how all this can actually work. And it involves quantum physics because quantum physics is one of the most basic presentations of the physical universe and our knowledge and understanding and, uh, of, that, uh, of that universe. And uh, so you come to realize that quantum physics, uh, neuroscience, what's called the hard problem of consciousness, which is an impossible problem for materialist thinking that try to pretend the brain creates consciousness. Uh, and then all of the world of parapsychology offers up additional evidence for the primacy of consciousness hmm. because non-local consciousness defies uh, the materialistic assumptions about the brain and sensory modalities and the, and the uh, physical world being the only reality well, you cannot even explain its internal workings within itself. That's why, for example, most physicists, when challenged with the measurement paradox in quantum physics, will uh, vote for uh, Hugh Everett's uh, Many Worlds interpretation from 1957, which is infinite parallel universes unfolding in every instant in space-time. That explains the results of quantum physics experience, experiments, but it doesn't seem to be the universe we live in. You know, infinite parallel universes, every choice point of a sentient being's observations is not the universe I live in. And there are much better answers to the measurement paradox. Uh, and we talk about all that in Living in a Mindful Universe. 
but it's all about uh, a unification of science and spirituality that is inevitable, given the data, given the modern theoretical framework. And uh, so in the current era, the modern scientific thinking is one that acknowledges our spiritual reality and the spiritual nature of this universe, our sense of connectedness through that one mind, and that we're all really in this together. That's why NDEs as the tip of the spear and this evolving science of consciousness is so crucial uh, at, at kind of pointing out this kind of united uh, kind of sense of connection through mind and also a sense of meaning and purpose that we have, that we share. This kind of evolution towards oneness with the divine is really about treating each other with kindness, compassion, mercy, acceptance. That is a prime directive of what is emerging from the science of consciousness based in NDEs. And it's quite contrary to the current status quo and kind of direction of humanity. When you look at all the polarization, friction, modern warfare, violence against others, economic polarization that, that uh, uh, basically takes the false sense of separation of materialism and militarizes it, weaponizes it. Uh, and that's why this world needs to grow up. Homo sapiens. Sapiens means wise. Well, it's time for us to truly grow into that wisdom and the modern science of consciousness, especially tempered with the, uh, the beauty of near-death and shared-death experiences, uh, leads us in that beautiful direction of unification, peace, love, and harmony. Mm. Oh, that's extraordinary. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I, I'm just struck how vivid and passionate uh, uh, this is for you 14 years after the, the events in that coma. And as if you were talking about something that happened to you yesterday or this morning, as, uh, as you said, and, and, and that, that sense is very clear from, your, uh, from you in, in when you were speaking. And, and I like just to reflect on a few, you, you say so many things, but I, I like the fact you mentioned the golden rule, which is found in most, if not all of the traditional religions. And, and just, we right. have the, you seem to be saying that we have these tools already. We don't have to discover esoteric techniques to um, advance in the way as you suggest, in love and compassion and care for others. No, they're there. The, the elephant's in the room. It's called the golden room. Right. It's there in the Gospels. It's there in the Jewish Bible. It's there in Islam. It's there in other faiths as well. So that's interesting that we have these tools and we just need to uh, put them into practice more effectively in our day-to-day -day, uh, lives. Um, I, I just want to ask you, I mean, there's so many questions I could ask. So I was, I'm going to limit myself to a few. Um, but... Um, could you just clarify conceptually about the origins of consciousness if it is not a byproduct of the brain? Because I, I, I remember when I did a uh, I studied philosophy at university and uh, we I did a, a module or a course on the philosophy of mind, and I remember the professor who was from UCL in 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 London, and he, he was he was telling us to look at a conceive of a patch of pink and how we, how that would be understood conceptually in philosophy. And I remember thinking, this is not going anywhere. This is a materialist, reductionist um, consciousness is kind of an epiphenomenon of the brain. It's a byproduct of material processes. And I remember at that time thinking, we need a paradigm shift. We need a change in our understanding. And that's what you have said from a completely different place as well, that this materialist uh, explanation is not an explanation at all. We need to move beyond it into a much more 
top down or ideal uh, in right. idealism isn't it it's associated with absolutely idealism but i think that that's the important thing is uh, this notion of idealism you know that the mental layer of the universe uh, provides a top down kind of causal uh, influence on all of emergent reality and and yes that's exactly what we're developing and what you find is materialism is a very weak and paltry fiction that actually goes nowhere. Uh, there are many materialist neuroscientists, uh, Daniel Dennett would be an example, uh, as a philosopher, um, who try to pretend none of us are conscious. We're all zombies. And again, what happens is they're seduced into the study of the physical world as if the physical is all that exists. And um, uh, that seduction uh, kind of leads them into nonsensical territory. And then they just try and say, you know, given that consciousness doesn't exist, we don't have to explain it. Let's just get on with our lives. Well, that's kind of crazy, given that the only thing any any human being or sentient being has ever known is the inside of their own consciousness. Uh, one of the deepest lessons from quantum physics is we cannot assume that that physical world out there around us exists as an objective, independent reality that is not fully dependent on the observing mind. And that's where this notion of idealism is so powerful. And, and you just have to take yourself away from thinking that, that consciousness and that self-awareness is just something that human beings enjoy, because it's not. Rene Descartes sent us on the wrong pathway long ago, you know, the, uh, four centuries ago as a French philosopher, uh, where he, he basically falsely assumed that humans have some consciousness that was way above and beyond anything that, that animals could muster. Yeah, right. And what I would say is that was a gigantic error of just huge proportions that has led to tremendous mis misunderstanding in the ensuing centuries. Uh, animals can have a very rich sense of self-awareness. And actually what I would tell you is that sense of self-awareness is a property of the universe itself. So in other words, it's not like the universe had to wait for human consciousness to evolve. Consciousness has always been there. The self-awareness preceded the Big Bang. It's outside of space and time. That's exactly what you experience in a life review, where you go through and relive the big events of your life from the perspective of others around you. Yeah. Uh, that's a demonstration of just how powerfully the universe can present uh, these events of our existence uh, to us in in a format that allows for us to learn and teach from that uh, from that experience. Uh, and the very fact then that you have reincarnation cases with such a strong scientific basis is showing us in no uncertain terms that consciousness is something that is really part of the universe itself. Mm -hmm. Sentient beings can share in that. And it turns out there is a top-down causality. Uh, so most of the people who get fooled and sucker punched by materialism into falsely believing that the brain is creating consciousness have this vision of bottom-up causality, where it's subatomic particles following the laws of, of physics, chemistry, biology, that then generates this illusion of consciousness and illusion of free will. Very important to point out from that materialist perspective, it's all chemical reactions, electron fluxes. So there's no place you could ever put in any sense of free will. And yet, what I would say this bigger uh, vision of, of the science of consciousness brings to the fore, and it's they are not only in living in a mindful universe in our book, but, uh, for example, uh, in the Bigelow uh, 
Institute uh, essay contests and people who are interested, this question of the afterlife has been answered scientifically. Just go to BigelowInstitute.org, reads those 29 essays, start with the first one by Jeff Mishlov. Uh, they were all written to, to uh, address the question of what is the best scientific evidence uh, for a continuity of consciousness beyond permanent bodily death. And in that essay contest or 29 winning essays at BigelowInstitute.org, I encourage everybody to go read them. You will no longer have questions about whether the afterlife is real. It's absolutely real. Uh, and these essays help to clarify all that. But the reason I bring it all up is the second place winner, Pim Van Lommel's paper uh, in that BigelowInstitute.org set of papers, uh, he argues for the one mind in a very scientific way at the end of his essay. And his is a very, he's a, a Dutch cardiologist, so a very scientific approach to the question. And he lists four resources for this concept of the one mind towards the end of his essays. One resource being Larry Dossie's book, One Mind, which I also highly recommend and endorse. Uh, then there's also Steve Taylor's book, Spiritual Science, again, highly recommended. Uh, paper by Bernardo Castrop, Castrop with a K. People who want to learn more, go to bernardocastrop.com. But the paper is called The Universe in Consciousness. Uh, and it's referenced, uh, it's in, in one of the uh, journals of consciousness studies. And then Pim Van Lamo mentions as his fourth resource uh, for the one mind, our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. And I would also say that Pim Van Lamo's book, Consciousness Beyond Life, is a beautiful expose of the scientific aspects unifying science and spirituality uh, through these very same arguments, but they all hinge on idealism, on the reality of that one mind, and that the brain is a filter or reducing valve, uh, but it's allowing all of us access to that one mind consciousness. And that is the model that fits the data best. That's where the world is going in our scientific understanding, and it absolutely demands a unification of our sense of science and spirituality. No, I, th I think that there's a plausible case for a, a paradigm shift there. But is it not the case also, and this is a, something you've not mentioned so far, that in the literature, the, in the near-death experience literature, people who've undergone near-death experiences, some of them, it may be a minority, have undergone what they would call what, what is known as hellish NDEs. Because the, the vision that you, you portrayed reminded me very much of Dante's Divine Comedy. I was thinking, because I was actually reading it at the moment, I've, I've been through hell, I'm, I'm currently in purgatory, but you're looking towards this divine uh, um, experience of the oneness of God. And you remember the, the angelic choirs, it reminded me of, of Dante quite, quite a bit. But also there is hell. Uh, in, in for some of these people, how does that fit in? We're talking about paradise and hell in a very traditional binary sense you find, in, for example, in Christian theology. Well, it turns out that uh, the hellish NDEs, if I had gone into my experience and I'd gone to the earthworm eye view and then I'd come back to this world, I would have had what's called a hellish NDE or negative NDE, uh, kind of a negative experience. Now, I want to point out, though, that in, in the literature, there are about three to five percent. Uh, you can certainly argue, you know, no question of the incidence of NDEs in the literature is an underestimate because people 
do not necessarily want to come back and talk about this. It's it's too much. Uh, They they worry my doctor's going to think I'm crazy. They're going to put me on antipsychotics, blah, 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 all that old story, because that's what our culture has tried to do for so long is to suppress these things. So, yes, I'll I'll agree that they're underreported. And you could expect that negative ones would be more underreported than the positive ones. People might be a little more willing to share the positive ones, even though they sound crazy. Um, but the important point to stress is that, uh, for one thing, they, they match the, the hospice literature, uh, the kind of incidents of what people experience. And in that hospice literature, I include things like Attica prison, you know, a prison where you've got uh, uh, rapists and murdering uh, uh, prisoners serving as hospice workers for fellow prisoners. And what they witness is the same kind of thing that hospice workers outside witness, which is as people approach death, they basically kind of go back through events of their lives. They reunite with souls of those who have left the physical plane that are part of their soul group. Uh, and they share a lot of action there. And that can include action of regret uh, because that environment is really one of love and caring and kindness and compassion. Uh, and so to go in there, if you have a negative life review, if you've been busy handing out pain and suffering to others, you'll have a hellish life review because you have to be on the receiving end of all that. Right. Uh, my point would be there is no such thing as eternal hell and damnation. It doesn't exist. But in other, also do note that the ambience of what people report from NDEs, no matter what their kind of background and situation, is really that that world where we revisit and, and relive these events in the life review is a world of love, compassion, oneness, and the highest good. It's not like you find a battle between good and evil, like God and the devil duking it out in that level. That's not what people see. That's not what they report. They report this beautiful, loving God. And if there's any kind of hellish stuff to it, usually it's just because they've mistreated others. And that comes back to you in the life review. So what this is showing us is we may fool ourselves in this world into thinking good and evil are in some monstrous battle uh, for controlling, uh, you know, the existence of the universe. But from the perspective of those who have escaped the shackles and the kind of fiction of the physical brain and body and material realm, they witness this incredible sense of love and compassion and kindness and mercy. And that's what that deity with that creative uh, God force is. And to me, I came back from my journey realizing, you know, it's a worthless fool's errand to be debating the details of should we call that force, that force of love, should we call it God, Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, great spirit. That is a meaningless and useless debate. And that's what happens uh, when you default to kind of uh, religious ideologies, scripture, detailed debates from a human material perspective, as opposed to taking the, the deep lessons of the prophets and mystics to heart, that this is truly about love, compassion, oneness, uh, helping others, taking care of the least, the last, and the lost. Those are the lessons that emerge from the richest spiritual territory of these journeys going back thousands of years 
years. And this is where humanity in many ways has kind of lost its way through the sucker punch of materialism and believing it's true. And therefore, this false sense of separation that comes bundled with reductive materialist science. And it is not quantum informed because the quantum informed view of consciousness of mind brain relationship is one that focuses on the oneness, the love and the power of this kind of higher vision for humanity. And given that religions have had five to 10,000 years to kind of give us this uh, golden rule uh, and so far have not quite done so, I would say let's uh, let's take the lead of near-death experiences. And in fact, there's a beautiful book on this topic written by a friend and colleague, Christopher Copps, C-O-P-P-E-S. The book is called The Essence of Religions. Um, and I highly recommend this book. In fact, I wrote a foreword for it. Uh, but it compares the five main faiths of the world with NDEs as kind of a gold standard for uh, deep religious spiritual beliefs and uh, shows where they fall away from uh, perfection. And we see that uh, if they'd really just align more with their deeper mystical traditions, you know, as I came back from my coma, realizing that uh, Jewish mysticism, Kabbalism, uh, uh, Christian mysticism, Sufism, uh, Islamic mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Baha'i faith, uh, Shintoism, they, these all have kind of roots of this kind of sense of oneness and connection and love and compassion and mercy. And that's what we need to focus on, not the superficial level dogma of scriptural conflict um, and inconsistencies. And this can all be gleaned through personal experience, power of prayer, meditation, uh, I meditate an hour to a day. For those who need a tool, I recommend Sacred Acoustics. Just go to sacredacoustics.com, download the free 20-minute OM file. Now, full disclosure, that website belongs to my partner uh, and co-author of that third book, Karen Newell. She's a co-founder of Sacred Acoustics with her business partner, uh, Kevin Cossey. But I learned within two years of my coma that differential frequency brainwave entrainment could offer a very powerful mode of exploring consciousness. And I've used it an hour to a day for the last decade plus. It's been tremendously helpful in recovering my NDE, not just memories of the NDE, but actively engaging with my NDE and its various elements in terms of the lessons I am to learn and to teach. Meditation, centering prayer, going within, absolutely essential because we realize that little voice in our head you know, our, our ego mind is not who we are. I like how Michael Singer calls that voice in my head, the annoying roommate because that's exactly what it is. And there's an aspect of our soul that is much deeper than that ego mind. And that's what we can come into much closer touch with through meditation on a regular basis. I think uh, I'm just imagining the response of some of the viewers, uh, say the Christians or Muslims or, or others, um, to, to some of the things you might have said, for example, about the existence of heaven and hell as objective dimensions after post-mortem. Um, uh, because you mentioned the prophets and so on, but if one looks at the Gospels, the, the earliest Gospels, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus is portrayed as someone who is teaching about the realities of hellfire as well as uh, the realities of, of paradise, as existential, metaphysical rather, realities beyond this life. And also if you look at the Quran, for example, in the Hadith literature, there are many warnings to people about uh, hellfire as, as a reality that is not just... Um, uh, an incomplete, perhaps misunderstanding or not a mystical insight, but as an objective place that one could go for to be punished. I mean, there's kind of retributive punishment in hellfire spoken of in Islam, uh, as well as in 
the Jewish um, uh, the Jewish prophet Jesus himself. And there are other religions where you get similar, like the Tibetan Book of the Dead obviously alludes to hellish states as well and so on. So the, the problem would be is that if one takes these datum very seriously as people actually sent by God, so God actually sent Jesus, God actually sent Muhammad, God actually sent these other people as well, with information about the unseen that we cannot access in our earthbound lives, then we are invited to uh, accept and adjust our lives accordingly to these realities beyond death. And there's, there seems to be a competition here between what I've just said there and the NDE uh, narratives as, you, as you're interpreting them. They seem to be in competition. And a, a believer will always put, uh, I would imagine, put God and revelation above any other source, however passionately experienced it was in terms of NDEs here, um, uh, and so there, there, there does seem to be a. I'm trying to say there does seem to be a contradiction, and um, right. and, and, well, and I, I, I don't have any answers. By the way, I'm just observing. There seems to be this contradiction. I would simply say that every one of those reported hellish experiences can easily be uh, a life review from someone who was so busy handing out a lot of pain and suffering to others that when they had to be on the receiving end of it, it was very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. My point would be, why would uh, you know this infinitely loving God create a world where there is a, a, a permanent damnation for a soul? I mean, is that really within the realm of possibility that uh, God would uh, uh, allow creation of souls where some of them are doomed to these eternal damnation and suffering? I believe it's much more readily explained by understanding that, yes, we, we face a reckoning for our actions in this life and how we treated others, but it's not a permanent uh, damnation for eternity. It's going through a life review where they have to experience that, uh, feel the, the, how it, it just doesn't jive with the, the beauty and oneness of that realm and go through the course correction of a soul uh, that would happen from that. So, uh, and especially when you look at the very strong evidence for reincarnation in the scientific literature, you really have to bundle some form of our souls coming back again and again into our understanding of reality because it's there. Uh, it doesn't just disappear because you want to ignore it or not study the data. It's an absolute fact of, of existence in thousands and thousands of cases studied over decades uh, by very competent investigators. So uh, uh, from my point of view, this, this view just makes more sense than some form of eternal damnation. Uh, and I think that's where uh, this world of consciousness studies can be very open minded and not uh, follow just some kind of religious doctrine or ideological doctrine, but be more open to the evidence and where it leads. OK, uh, that's right. just one little detail about the girl in your in your experience. So you, who was she? Was she someone, in fact, who was had a connection with your life outside of that? coma experience. I don't know what words to use when I speak of that. But well, this this is a bit of a spoiler alert because, of course, uh, you know, the book Proof of Heaven uh, was a, a, an absolute blockbuster when it came out in 2012, 2013, um, you know, and then published in 40 languages around the world. So 
you know, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for the better part of two years, including 42 weeks as number one in nonfiction. So it, it had an impact. And I can tell you that's because it resonated with a lot of people who have had this experience. Yeah. And they, they wrote back and said that those words, that story helped them to process and come to a deeper understanding of their experience. So, um, uh, and I'm sorry, I, I lost the your, your no, no, question. It, it, it's about the girl. In, you, you mentioned this girl. Oh, the girl. Okay. Yeah. So this is, and you seem to suggest that there was more. There was more to this story than you you briefly mentioned. Right. In the introduction. Well, that's um, that's the part. It's a bit of a spoiler alert, but it turns out, you know, when I came back from my coma, I'd never really read the NDE literature before. I, I thought it was hallucinations of the dying brain. So who cares? And after my NDE, you bet I cared a lot. Although I wrote down of 20,000 words of my memory of my experience before I read anything about anybody else's near-death experience. That way I had that database of my own experience untainted by anyone else's. Uh, but a big mystery to me was who in the world was that spiritual guide? She was yeah. so prominent. She, every time I passed through that gateway valley, there she was offering me this beautiful message, very reassuring, uh, emotional, telepathic delivery of this, you are cared for and love, you have nothing to fear. Uh, and yet I had had no idea where she'd come from. Uh, if I had scripted this whole thing, first and foremost, my father would have been there, my adoptive father, the renowned uh, neurosurgeon who passed over four years before my coma. Well, if I wanted a spiritual guide, he would have been there, but he wasn't. How come? And to me, that was a giant challenge to the entire experience, especially as I read more and more NDEs and was trying to make sense of my own. And that's why four months after my coma, and this is all explained fully in Proof of Heaven, uh, but I and I won't go into detail because there's still so much beauty to that story that I want people to appreciate. But to cut to the chase, the answer to your question is I discovered four months after my coma that my birth sister from my birth family had passed over uh, back in 1998, two years before I even knew she existed. And that she, in fact, when I got a picture four months post coma of that birth sister, I recognized that beautiful guardian angel on the butterfly wing. So this, this is and, an actual biological relative being an adopted uh, child. I, I'm adopted as right. well. So I, I understand the dynamics of that. This is a biological relative you didn't know existed, who had sadly passed away, but she appeared or was present in some way in this experience. And right. subsequently, after you recovered, did you discover who she was? And you've never exactly. had no knowledge of her. And that's that, that, that was the, the twist in the story that I wanted you to Right. It's called a peak in Darien experience. That's what in the NDE literature, these kind of extraordinary visions of uh, deceased, deep connection people, uh, often in a setting where they're not known to have deceased yes. uh, to a given person. But uh, it's called a peak in Darien, D-A-R-I-E-N. It's uh, from a term uh, that was uh, concerned, the early conquistadors hitting Central America, hundreds of years ago when they saw the Pacific Ocean, after just emerging from the Atlantic Ocean, they were absolutely shocked and befuddled by the vision. And that's why uh, it's that same kind of shock and awe of, yeah. that I had when, I, I mean, when I saw this picture and, and made the connection, I, I was so dumbfounded. I was on my knees. I couldn't even stand up for half an hour or more. I was so shocked because it brought all of those worlds together showed me the reality of the experience in a very profound fashion. So it was a tremendous gift. Uh, and, and it's almost as if Betsy was looking at me, do you finally get it in that picture? And yes, Betsy, I do finally get it. 
Well, I, I think we'll perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. But um, thank you very much indeed for your extraordinary um, uh, telling us with such vivid freshness, as I say, as if it happened just the other day um, of your experience. And uh, and also, uh, um, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that we do need a paradigm shift, as, as I say, in um, our science of consciousness and how science and spirituality are closely related. And I think NDEs can certainly be indicators of that or the, the tip of the spearhead. I like the analogy you use. Uh, Right. Pushing through this materialist, um, uh, archaic way of looking at the world and opening it up yeah. to uh, a more top down ide- idealism, as, as it's called in, in philosophy. So I, I think there's much well, material materialism basically died uh, almost a century ago. It's just that many people have not yet read the memo. Uh, but materialism's yeah. dead, certainly in terms of brain, mind uh, and understanding these phenomena. No one still subscribes to materialism as being a pathway forward in understanding. Uh, but there are beautiful scientific theories that fully allow uh, for this uh, with the primacy of consciousness uh, and looking at the brain as a filter or transceiver that allows that uh, primordial consciousness to express in this limited fashion but that's where meditation going within centering prayer. These are all ways to expand our connection and cultivate a relationship uh, with that God force in our lives. It's interesting on a slightly different subject, but on Monday, I'm, I'm talking again to Professor Keith Ward, who um, reached Professor Divinity at Oxford, and he gave a lecture, which he's going to uh, mention again about the relationship between religion and quantum science, because he used he knows some physicists at Oxford and covering many of the same themes that you've covered as well. And he's an idealist. Uh, he's a philosopher who's an idealist. Um, so this top-down language is, is familiar from his discourse right. on this subject as well. So it's quite a nice coincidence if one can call this serendipitous uh, connection between your, your um, coming on today and speaking to him, God willing, on Monday about a very similar area. So um, well, there are no accidents. It's all <laughs> happening for I a purpose. Say something. <laughs> no, I, no I, I, I complete. I'm with you on that. I'm uh, serendipity, as they say. So, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Evan Alexandra, for your time and uh, your enthusiasm and your uh, many uh, fascinating insights. As I say, into the science of consciousness and uh, science and spirituality. So, um, just thank you very much indeed. Well, Paul, thanks for having me on, and thanks for getting this out there. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Until next time. All right. Talk soon.